Hello, Caitlin. Hello, Emily. Welcome to this lovely day. <laughs> Emily Banks Gibson is what I wanted to say. <laughs> um, I feel like we've already talked about your new last name, but do you go by... Oh, it's confusing. I know. Your official name is... <laughs> I don't even know What anymore. are you going to say? Like if someone like Caitlin McFarland Miller... Well, it's not technically hyphenated. I decided and it was a really good choice actually like I wanted to be Caitlin Miller first name Caitlin last name Miller but because professionally I will still be McFarland and I've been McFarland for I was 38 years the thing that was the the smart choice is McFarland is basically my middle name now technically it's J McFarland because I liked my initials don't get me started so on the ID my middle name is J McFarland the reason it was a good idea is the number of places your name is and the number of times people can stop you. Like I went to ACL live the other day and the tickets, a friend put the tickets under my name. She doesn't know to ask me that I have a new last name. And if McFarland wasn't on the ID, I don't know if they would have given me the tickets because the tickets were under Caitlin McFarland. Interesting. So like it's helped at the airport. Mm -hmm. It's helped at picking up tickets. Like it usually helped. The part that's the problem is it's so easy. Um, and it looks like a last name. Obviously it is a last name. It's not like a middle name that it's making me lazy about changing my name places. <laughs> like, yeah. And all the official places is it, it has changed all my IDs, airline things all of that sort of stuff it is officially changed but even like banking like they'll look at it and be like oh that's your last name so from a professional standpoint since I wasn't changing it anyway very long story uh it has it even helps like us like if I'm gonna sign something yeah technically my name like still it's still your name well I think my name also the best thing that you could have done is marry someone that has the same initial yes so even, even anything initialing that's CM, like yeah. doesn't matter it's really excellent nice. work. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. It was a deciding factor. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I, I confuse myself and most times I check in for a restaurant reservation. I'm like, it's this or this. I don't know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> under, under something. Caitlin, what do you got? <laughs> <laughs> do you have a Caitlin on that list somewhere? Okay, great. I'll take Maybe that. Maybe that works too. <laughs> um, but yeah, sometimes names um actually speaking of names so today's uh release is into the ip verse building a franchise which i will talk about how we came up with this topic i don't know maybe it's interesting but the names thing does make me think about so house of the dragon yep yep not to be confused with house of dragons because that's there's a which doesn't make sense because they have more than one dragon so it should be pluralized it is not house of the single you know George, you know, don't listen to me. It's fine. I bet there's someone listening right now that is knows a lot more about Game of Thrones than we For do, which doesn't people. take much. <laughs> um, and there is probably a specific reason it's House of the Dragon. Like maybe it is talking about a specific dragon. I mean, maybe, but I think it's House Targaryen and they are in charge of the dragons. And I've already seen more than one dragon. So anyway, this is not the point. My point was going to be that the names in this show are wild and I don't know any of them. Do you all. watch with subtitles on? No, I don't. That because then I just a find lot myself of reading. I just read and I don't look and I, it really, it, I, I don't enjoy my, I don't have the inability to 
What about when you watch a foreign movie? I I mean, I do do that. And that is fine. I did do, I did it all of, oh gosh, squid Squid game, game, Game. one game, one game, one game. Also (laughs) called that games for a real long time. Nope. Everyone does. There are multiple games. I know, but I think the whole thing is one Mm, game. Sure. I don't know. Sure. I've got notes guys. I've got notes. Um, I did watch it and I got in, I can fall into it, but I, it always takes a moment, a time. And if I'm watching week to week, I watch squid game in over like a week. So anyway, well, I will say viewing habits later, but the name totally different story. Aren't there two girls that are pretty close to Renera? Absolutely. Like absolutely. Renera and one of them is not. Yes. And the problem is I, know all their names I cannot pronounce any of their names Mm. but because I see them sure I know who they're talking about because I mean for me the biggest reason I mean there's many reasons I watch the subtitles for that show but it's so anytime honestly not even like the person that's in the scene when they're talking about someone else or they're talking about a different place if I don't see it I'm like it totally goes over my head who they're talking about where they're talking about spell it who connects I know like spell it I bet you can spell it you probably can't pronounce it but I bet you can spell names I could spell some of them whose name do you want me to spell Renera I think it's r-h-a-e-n-y-r-a I don't know. I, can't, I, I don't can't. know. Somebody I'm not going to fact check. Somebody at home. We're going to do some social media about that one. Um, <laughs> anyway, I am in, I mean, we can talk about how some, there are about 75 podcasts going on right now. And Re- most of them are like three hours long. Yeah. And I love The Ringer and Joanna Robinson and Chris Ryan on The Watch, but there are at least four Game of Thrones episodes slash podcasts every week about each episode. So I have to pick which one if I'm going to listen to one, which I do listen to. I listen to the ones about the pilot. So I have some base information having no, I've never read Game of Thrones books, but in talking about IPverse. So this panel um, that we're releasing today came out of the fact actually from smarter people than me listening to Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan on the watch and talking about in all of the IP nature of television and movies one step further is ip universes so in film obviously like marvel things dc things um but what was that in television and so we have representatives on the panel from the disney universe with obi-wan kenobi and the walking dead scott gimple's title is chief content officer of the walking dead universe which feels like a great title wild um We've got somebody from the Russo Brothers Company, president of television. It's either AGBO or it's AGBO, and I apologize for not knowing. It is all capital letters, but there are no periods between them. So that's very confusing. Um, and then this says that actually I was wrong. Charmaine DeGrate, who is a writer and co-EP on House of the Dragon, and um, a Lucasfilm show that's coming up called Daisy Jones and the Six. So I did actually see her name on episode. She didn't write episode two, but I saw her co-EP title. Um, but this idea of we're going beyond IP, which we've already talked about, like the idea of League of Their Own or, you know, books into TV shows, et cetera. And we're going into these universe things, which is pulling single characters. In this case, it is a different text. 
um, but it's focusing on a, you know, a different time period. Uh, obviously, Disney is doing it with Star Wars by giving variety of people their mm-hmm. own shows. And I think it's kind of interesting for something like Disney. Obi-Wan Kenobi obviously is a very well-known character of the Star Wars universe, but like the Mandalorian wasn't, which is what they launched with. Right. In, I'm sure it is to a lot of people, but not. You say obi like help me obi-wan kenobi you know, I only hope. <laughs> People i'm understand. not even a huge star wars fan i know these lines um so you've got that type of character for them walking dead is going to have all their spinoffs so like i just think it's really interesting when i was starting to when i watched the pilot of house of dragon of the dragon excuse me so i know words it's, it's, t- um, it's tough but you got it you're there the new game of thrones um <laughs> when i watched it the thing that i thought they have going for them i immediately compare it i don't know if it was if it's me but it feels like within the industry there's a comparison of this coming back and amazon's lord of the rings yes. that will be coming out in september and the thing that r- immediately popped into my head about what hbo and game of thrones have going for them is i mean it starts with the same slash similar music like it immediately puts you, if you are a fan of Game of Thrones, right back into Game of Thrones. Like, you see the dragons, you know this world, it's King's Landing. Like, if you watch Game of Thrones, this is familiar. Not the characters, not the actors, but this is a world and a feeling that is immediately familiar. It's very gory and gruesome and serious. I mean, I remember watching Game of Thrones the first time, and when they chopped off the horse's head, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's the show we're watching. having a different show. Okay, great. Um, whereas with Lord of the Rings, and I feel like I can say this in the fact that it hasn't come out yet, but like the challenge it has going for it is Amazon didn't make Lord of the Rings the movies. And Peter Jackson, who made those movies, is not a part of the show. And I'm sure they're spending all of the money, obviously. So I'm sure they can create all of that. But like HBO knows how to make the dragons. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. The well, expectations of like, who are you? what are you fulfilling and do you know how to make it and what are you allowed to change and what are you building on like just that solid base of like oh the music oh the well and it's interesting because in house of the dragon you start out and it immediately links it to game of thrones mm-hmm. because i mean the, the oh the, titles, the title card. the titles yeah. it's like you know where you're many at. years before the mad 72 there you go after before denarius before denarius like, that... you immediately are like okay i have now linked this to the show that I know. Right. And I do think like there's rules of the world that we already know and are familiar with, even if obviously the rules changed in 172 years, but like we know some of this history and uh, I, there were even anecdotes they were saying where they are like character name drops mm-hmm. um, of like Stark and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the houses that come and like yeah, bend the knee or whatever. Exactly. So you're like having like these little snippets and nuggets of it where i was watching it with two people that did not watch game of thrones okay and do they care i don't think that they cared like they were they impressed by the dragons because that's what got me in the original game of thrones but i will say it was baby dragons that got me to watch that well that's well because the other thing too is the thing that they didn't know this is not gonna be a game of thrones podcast we already said there are plenty of those but the thing that they didn't know is in game of thrones when it starts out like dragons haven't been seen for however long right so the fact that like they not even them having that knowledge of like i think it's fascinating Mm -hmm. in a place like we're starting i'm intrigued by the the thought that we're starting in a place where like dragons are the norm right now Mm -hmm. people have dragons they understand dragons they know how dragons work it's not this like 
I mean, I still find the dragons exciting, but it's not like an excite. It's an everyday thing for them. Whereas, right. and so part of me is like, oh my gosh, dragons become extinct. Like we're starting out here. And right. Where How did they go? What 172 happens? years. There's this like base knowledge of like why this is important. And the Targaryens right. that I know the Targaryens obviously lose control of the, the throne yeah. at some point. But I knew from the history well, of Game of Thrones that yeah. at one point they had the throne. So like I'm already invested because I know where it's going mm-hmm. and I understand what's happening in a different way. Whereas my friends that are watching it, they're like, I yeah, don't know. It is interesting because like when they, I don't know if it's episode one or two, but when they mention like the great winter prep, it's at the end of it's one, the end of when one, he yeah. gives her the prophecy or whatever that has been seen, it's like, you know, that's true. Like, you know, that's going to happen. And it, it is it is all very interesting it it's curious to me to hear they didn't care and I wonder how many people I wonder how many new people are going to watch this and then like go watch yep. Game of Thrones or just because, how many new people are going to watch it in general yeah oh yeah without going back and watching Game of Thrones like people that did not watch Game of Thrones that's what I'm saying oh I thought you were saying how many people that are new that are watching it that will go back and watch Game of Thrones mm-hmm. which is I just in general wonder like how many new yeah. people are watching yeah, it. yeah that was I corrected my I said or just watch just watch this yeah. that like in a in a way that I mean I truly remember Game of Thrones was out for a couple of seasons didn't care didn't care didn't care Bill Lawrence on a podcast was like baby dragons and I was like I'm sorry what baby dragons and for whatever reason my brain was like that's worth it and seeing that pro like that's such a big part of that show her and I'm not gonna spoil but fire and eggs and things (laughs) and then a baby dragon um I can't know but like when I see these dragons I got like in episode two I got really excited when there were two dragons on screen (laughs) I was like these are good dragons they're kind of like bats they're kind of oh they're they're cool so to compare in the IP world that would I would imagine that's the goal is you get the people who are fans of Game of Thrones, but you obviously get people like it stands alone, like it's interesting on its own. Um, it it just makes me wonder, like the hill that Lord of the Rings has to go up, that like this one didn't. Yep. In the same way, like in terms of known quantity on television, the world you're expecting, like Lord of the Rings has to match up to books and those movies and be its own thing I think it's got a lot of new characters and you have to be interested and all that well there's also the question because Game of Thrones I'm gonna say just ended it ended not that long ago almost three years ago wow longer Uh than I thought um but still two and a half relatively not that long ago and interestingly enough being a tv show you and I both came on later in the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even mean that. Um, we came on later. We obviously went back and started at the beginning and watched all of it, but we came on later, got there, caught up and still like spent time in it because there, that's yeah. the other thing. As we all know, people, television, like longer investment yeah. and you're in this for a while. Whereas the Lord of the Rings movies came out that I can't quite a long time, but ago. I feel like quite a while. And but then there was the Hobbit. True, true. Which I that can't was remember, also, I, can't I think, a while ago. But the Lord of the Rings movies, yes, while they are quite long, they are something that you can consume in a relatively short amount of time. Right. So people don't live in it as much. And I don't know that people are, people didn't like discover it in the same way along, along mm. the journey. And so you don't have that. People are very attached imprint. to Lord of the Rings, but you don't have that immediate entrance mm-hmm. into it. Whereas yeah. 
most people just finished the last game of Thrones two and a half ish years ago. Whereas Lord of the Rings, like, I mean, continue the debate star Wars. And then the Mandalorian came out and people were like, Oh my gosh, what True. is this? True. Good. So point. like, I, this is the IP. This is now. This is welcome well, the, the difference IP with version. Star Wars, though, uh-huh. actually, Tell is me. she's pointing at me. Guys. I'm pointing, <laughs> she's wagging a finger. Is that isn't a wag finger? But it is Star Wars one. There are nine plus movies, uh-huh. and the movies have come out more recent. Sure, than... but Mandalorian's not part of them. No, no, no. But there's at least that like they've been feeding the universe y- more. Yeah. What than... I will call Baby Yoda, but wasn't Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They've sure. been feeding the universe more. So people are just more like still entering sure. into it at different places. Even like children are still being able to enter into it and like the really on the fly you know, theory. You know, I really, there's, <laughs> it's interesting in a way that Lord of the Rings, like, I don't know people that are newly discovering Lord of the Rings. Sure. Sure. But it, it is, I mean, it's really massive. But, but yeah, this I, will be their new discovery. Yeah, I, I don't know I what am, happens. It has so much potential and opportunity, obviously, but for the investment and like also the who's making it and then how. I'm, I am just super curious, like versus like these other ones feels like you're putting people in charge of these universes, like the Disney of it all, like John Favreau, like launched this universe with then, oh man, there are other names. I'm not even going to try. Um, but who's in charge, like the way that Scott Gimple is in charge of the universe, like who's in charge of those things. And I think that's also interesting, like for house of the dragon, got it right uh george rr R. martin is more involved in this one than he was in game of thrones and handpicked his ryan Fondle. yes good job you're welcome um so anyway i am fa- that's where this panel came out of it, is that i am fascinated with it in the sense that i do want original stories and things like that but the world what constitutes a universe and what is a company maybe just wanting to keep its IP going and have these big shows and these known quantities versus like, these are the actual interesting stories and worlds to explore from like a creative process. And then like, where does the audience come in? I find it all. Well, now I find what's going to be fascinating is what happens with DC now. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I can't remember who the name of the person, but they've just named basically a head of, head DC, of DC universe. universe. And a fun title. Yeah, it is a fun title, but they've just named that. And so Film now and TV. What do you know? Well, I don't know. Oh, okay. I mean, so it'll be interesting to see. I would assume because they, I mean, I don't even think they're hiding this. Like Zaslav is definitely not hiding this. Like they want Marvel. And so oh, I sure, feel sure, like, sure. yes, it will be TV. I feel like it's like, yeah. okay, they want these yeah. movies. Now, like, let's just explode this universe in the same way. And then they don't release Batgirl. And then they don't release Batgirl. Yep. You guys, I will say right here, because obviously we will never get this, but in case anybody wants to know, I at ATX Television Festival would like to screen the original Game of Thrones pilot. Oh, the one that they reshot. The one that they scrapped. I think Naomi Watts. Someone is in it. Uh, but yeah, like we did it one time with Tremors where we showed pieces and then did script readings. I'll do it anyway. That HBO, Max, Zasloff, I don't know, whoever will allow me. Casey Bloys, looking at you, would really love to do that. I think there's probably a very long line of people that want to do that. But I just think that would also be cool as the like beginning of a universe. Like they decided to redo it before anybody ever even saw it. And making it the most expensive pilot ever if you add both pilots together. Does, is that it beats Lord of the Rings? 
I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. Don't know. Great. Great. Well, with that, obviously we could talk about this for, we threatened that we are not doing a uh, house of the dragon (laughs) podcast because we have to think too long about saying that title. Um, So we will leave it to the professionals on this panel, which as I mentioned before is Scott Gimple, uh, Joby Harold, Scott Neems, and Charmaine DeGratte. And it is moderated by Daniel Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. Enjoy. So I want to start with a, a general icebreaker because it seems to me, as someone who watches entirely too much TV, and I assume it seems to many of these people for the same reasons, as if every single weekend, every single Friday, there's at least one new show based on a gigantic movie that people loved in the theaters a couple of years ago. There's another show in some expanded cinematic universe on some new streaming platform. There's another show based on a book that you loved five years ago. There's another show based on the podcast that you were obsessed with six months ago. For each of you guys, what franchise or form of IP are you always happy to see? What are you always happy to see more of? And if you guys are feeling really candid, is there anything that you feel like you've kind of reached saturation on and that maybe you just don't need anymore? Well, I mean, that's a boring answer, but Star Wars and Marvel. I'm really, really tired of the Arliss universe. (laughs) Oh, it's being rebooted as we speak. Someone is rebooting Arliss. Those are the ones that leap to mind that, you know, I'm just there for. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff coming up that I'm interested in, but I grew up really into comics and into Star Wars. And good work on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Wow. Yes, for sure. Um, Star Wars. I'm biased. Um, I think any, any of them that feel like, you know, the great thing about Star Wars when I was younger was like you could go down any corridor, any door of another story, and that's sort of the promise of the premise with that world. So I always want more. I feel like it's there. Galaxy. That, you know, infinite. I think some of them are more finite, and you feel like you're just gilding the lily by going back to the well, and it's like we've had enough. I won't name them. Um, but, but I think if it's warranted in the depth of storytelling that's already there, like, yeah, I'll go back and back to the well over and over and over again. I will say as long as there's a break between each time, you don't feel like it's, it's uh, you know, it's exhausting. But I, I'm a Star Wars guy. More Star Wars, please. Uh, I'm going to be a follower and say Star Wars also. Uh, my family and I, and Marvel as well. Um, the one universe I'm looking forward to is The Boys. Um, I love the, the, the original show and, and the animated series. And I know they're building out uh, different versions of it, and, and I'm very curious to see what they do with that one. Um, Star Wars. Can we all just talk about episode three? I mean, Wait, please spectacular, don't. spectacular. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> no spoilers. Um, but Star Wars, and I think Star Wars and Marvel, particularly Star Wars, it's just beautiful how they're finding stories in the universe that maintains the DNA of the IP that we all love, but really is additive to the world. And I think that's just sort of the gold standard for any universe looking to expand. Game of Thrones, obviously. <laughs> Very excited about that. There's really nothing that I'm, I find, like, oversaturating right now. I think that people are really innovative in the way that they're approaching story, and even in familiar universes, they're approaching it in a way where it feels like undiscovered territory. That reminds me of one, though, which is uh, almost anything that comes out with the word Lego is pretty much good. Scott Nemus, I want to start with you and get sort of an overview 
from you here because before you started AGBO, you were the head of IP acquisitions for Universal Studios Group, and that seems like, you know, sort of relevant job title to this here panel. Can you give us a state of the IP marketplace? What is, what are the hot properties? What are the cold properties? Not necessarily individual things, but is, you know, is it all about podcasts this week? Is it all about comic books? Where, where are we in that? It's a great question. I think podcasts have become the new uh, sort of hot pieces of IP. Um, but that said, I, I think if it's a great story with great characters, it, it kind of doesn't matter where it originates, whether it's a, a book, a, a, a short story, a podcast, or, you know, article, whatever it is, um, there's still going to be uh, value. Uh, my role in that division was to mine IP for the overall deals that sat at uh, USG. At the, so we were always looking at, at whether it's video games, comic books, um, what have you, uh, all, all of the above. Okay, and so for Scott Gimple, Joby, and Charmaine, I want to go sort of and play the game of how did you get here? Scott, you joined Walking Dead as, uh, in 2011, and then you became showrunner in 2013, but what was the process that took you from there to kind of becoming the, the puppet master of that entire universe? Oh, I'm not, I'm not co-signing on puppet master. Uh, uh, I had done four years of show running, and we had fear, but we didn't have uh, much else. We didn't have plans for much else. That would be Fear the Walking Dead. Oh, Fear they, the Walking they Dead. They did not just have general state yeah, of fear. We, no, we had that too. We did have that. We were terrified. In equal amounts. Uh, but um, I was talking to the folks that ran AMC at the time about other possibilities. And uh, it kind of it kind of evolved from there. And I elevated Angela Kang, the showrunner, uh, season, oh my gosh, season nine. And yeah, kind of blends together. And uh, just embarked on, you know, creating new shows and drafting new people into it and forming sort of a narrative stra uh, strategy. But how is that couched when it gets offered to you? Like, because it's the sort of thing where there could literally be as many Walking Dead shows as the world could hold and expanding like the universe. When they tell you we want there to be more of this, what is the mandate? You know, it was really a conversation. I was talking about more things I was interested in doing and they got excited about it. And they said, yes, and uh, do even more than that. Um, and come up with you know a multi-year plan towards this, and tried to do things. What I presented to this was you know The Walking Dead as you know a series of shows. I'm loath to use the word franchise, and I know it's in this panel description. It isn't. It isn't that they all have walkers. They all have the same story value. There's 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 something that makes a Walking Dead show the Walking Dead show because there are really fantastic zombie shows out there. Um, stuff that I like that doesn't have the same story values, that doesn't make them better or worse, just makes them different. But this was to take those story values and apply them across the universe, and not just with characters that we know. Why don't you like the phrase franchise? Um, I like fast food too, uh, but, <laughs> but it sounds very fast foody. Um, I, oh man, now this is turning into a, Turning into a therapy session. Uh, you want to lie down? Yeah. Can I, if I can just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit something too as well. We're, we're all friends here. It's a Sunday. Uh, 
I hate the term IP. It bums me out. <laughs> like, like, this is stuff that, you know, we grew up with and we, well, not necessarily all of it. Grow up with, like, the serial podcast. But, um, like, I don't like to think of Star Wars as IP or Marvel as IP or DC as IP or Dark Horse comics or indie comics or any comic as IP. Just that sounds so industrial. It moves all of this, which should be art, into just a little too close to commerce and, you know, words matter, and I'm insane, and uh, so... Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I, I, I heard at Comic-Con, uh, which I'm nearing my 30th Comic-Con, I heard somebody who's like, you know, a hero from my youth say, you know, I'm looking at a great deal of IP from my childhood, and that just, like, blew my mind, because, like, as a kid, you're not being like, man, that's, that's some good IP that's going to make me dream tonight. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. So, save me, Joby. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> well, along those lines, Joby, let's, let's make it into non-IP, just into nostalgia, because there have been now three generations of, of people who have grown up playing Star Wars in the playground played Obi-Wan Kenobi with their, their action figures, et cetera, et cetera. How did you get to be the person who got to bring it to the screen as a standalone writer? And did you play those games as a kid? Uh, I did. Oh, yeah. Um, I, uh, and I have them all at home, all my figures and my vehicles, next to Obi-Wan's lightsaber. So I have it, it's, which is great. Um, I was that kid. I, uh, it's why I moved out here to do all this uh, nonsense. Um, and then got to do it and had, I think of a word that isn't franchise or IP, gotten to do... Um, oh, uh, I, don't, I don't inflict things. that on everybody. Like, <laughs> uh, I'll say franchise stuff now. I'd gotten to do sort of, on the feature side, Transformers stuff and Flash stuff and DC World and like John Wick stuff and just things that existed in multiple episodes on a franchisee type level. And, um, and I loved it, and it was really fun. I didn't find it confining. I found it sort of exciting. And because of that, I had got to meet with Lucasfilm, and very quickly the character came up, and it's like a big character for me. Because like, I'm an original trilogy kid, so he's the one that, you know, he pulls the curtain back and brings you in, so he's the guy. Um, so I was really excited about talking about it, and then, you know, right away, we just kind of had a meeting of the minds about, about what it could be. To your point, like, it's... It doesn't feel like commerce when you're in it. It doesn't feel like a corporate enterprise. Everybody there wants to try to make something good, recognizing that it belongs to everyone, and everyone has an opinion, and you just sort of close the door and do your best work and try and, the kid who played with the Star Wars figures, try and make it for that kid, and then, and then just stay true to that. Um, but yeah, I got there through the feature side, I and mean, that's how I ended up being in the room. I have to ask, though, how you keep the commerce side of the thing out of the equation when you talk about all of the toys that you had for the show that you're working on, or there are many, many different products associated with The Walking Dead, et cetera. How, how do you not have that in your mind? Those toys were amazing. Like, like they, the people who did those toys were artists unto themselves. Like, I'm, I'm really excited over the past few years that... They've started sort of remaking the Kenner action figures for Star say, Wars, yeah, I was and, say so. and you can see there was like art to that. That it was it was sort of mind blowing, and yeah, in a perfect world, you're coming out with a lot of stuff, but it's with a lot of other artists. Like even the Funko Pop people, 
Like what they've created is amazing and wonderful. It brings people joy like every day. It's, I guess, bad toys and bad video games. That's what bums you out. And that's what I had on my desk when I was writing. I had the Funko Pop stuff. That's next to my laptop. Because that's the joy of it, right? That's the fun of it as much as I got my kind of things. And it's, it's, if it stops being fun, then like, what? <laughs> I think all of us would stop doing it. Otherwise, we just feel the weight of corporate pressure. It's got to be good. And it becomes fear-driven. And then it, it becomes less successful. And, and Charmaine, you're at an earlier stage of your career. And suddenly, looking at your credits, there's a lot of things that we apparently don't want to call IP here. <laughs> but you are working on a Game of Thrones spinoff. You have something in development that's very, very mysterious at Lucasfilm, about which I know nothing that you're going to clearly tell us all about. Obviously. I, I can tell. And you're working on uh, an adaptation of, of one of the most uh, beloved best-selling novels in, in recent years. How do you get in the door for those? And it doesn't seem like necessarily those would be the exact same voice that those three shows would be looking for. How do you show them that you have the voice they're looking for? For me, it's always about, I mean, this sounds sort of cliche, but it's always about character, right? And everyone looks at my resume and has a similar reaction in terms of like, these feel very sort of random and these feel very sort of separate. But at the end of the day, these are all sort of messy humans being delightful and, you know, messy and complicated and layered. So if you take them, you know, whether it's Daisy Jones in 1970s Sunset Boulevard, or if you take House of the Dragon, where it's, you know, Westeros, whether it's Lucasfilm, and obviously, you know, that universe, at the end of the day, it always sort of comes back to character, interesting relationships and dynamics, and I think the one thing I wanted to say about the commerce side of it, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I think when you're developing those stories and you're writing about those stories, you can't think about that. I mean, if you think about, I am developing a story within a larger franchise, I mean, that becomes so crushing, and it also is paralyzing, and the creativity can't thrive in paralysis. So you do kind of have to throw your blinders on and just really sort of concentrate on the aspects of the story that you love and the aspects of the story that you really want to see sort of developed and that you were hired to do. Because if you start thinking about, like, oh, my gosh, like, Star Wars, like, that would be crushing for you, right? If you start thinking about all the billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> You know, so it really is like you have to keep it rooted and grounded in the storytelling of it all and the characters and not think about the IP, the action figures, and keep it fun. Like you were saying, like the thing that I do love about these growing universes and the thing that I am conscious of is the fan base, really servicing the fans and making sure that it's something, you know, as opposed to sort of the corporate overlords. Can we say that? It's being taped. Um, and, you know, instead of servicing sort of the franchise IP aspect of it and focusing on the money, like, it really is servicing the people that made it beloved book or a beloved piece of IP or, you know, a beloved sort of universe and not reinventing the wheel, but really sort of keeping and preserving that DNA that everyone loved and that drew the people to the project or to the property to begin with. And keeping that at the forefront of your mind. And that, to me, that's, that's fun. So it's always great when things come out and you see people's reactions, and, and that's great. You guys missed it, but I completely fangirled over episode three. And so it was just like all of my, like the mythological levels of storytelling in that episode were just amazing. And so as a fangirl, not even as a you know, person who's involved with Lucasfilm, but as a fangirl, that was 
so exciting to me. And I wasn't thinking about the IP or the franchise of it. I was just thinking like, damn, like this is like stories from my childhood. Like that's kind of like 50 years in the making, that story. And it was um, executed really well. And I will stop fangirling over Jovi at some point. But I'm just using that as an example of, you know, why we do what we do. And it's to delight. But to jump on one, oh, Scott, did I interrupt you? Sorry. But one fan aspect I think that's super helpful is, with this stuff that we love, is the immense pressure towards doing it right. Like, I loved Walking Dead, the comic book. I loved the first season of Walking Dead. And I felt an immense pressure to make Robert Kirkman happy, to make <laughs> Frank Darabont happy. I, um, to do right by the work that got you there, or maybe even got you becoming a writer in the first place. So that, I, that sort of pressure is amazing. And I think to that point, it's the you know the three things that you that you mentioned: Daisy Jones and House of the Dragon and you know, Lucasfilm. I'm a fan first and foremost. And so when you ask what brought me to these projects, I think it's the passion and the you know authentic fan girldom of it all. And I think it would be challenging if it were part of a universe, you know, if I was hired to sort of expand a universe that I wasn't a fan of, that just wouldn't be, I don't know if that's something I could do effectively. But I think you, you bring up a great point, Charmaine, about um, the different iterations of storytelling. And I think part of what makes the, the Star Wars universe compelling and, and, and the uh, Marvel universe compelling in TV and film is that each of the interpretations feel unique amongst themselves. In other words, you can watch, we talked a lot about this at Agba with, with Joe and Anthony um, as well, which is you, you can watch these things as standalone pieces of content, but if you have a greater understanding of the broader IP, it will be that much more satisfying. That's a really, really great point. I think that's why you know prequels do so well. It's because we're so familiar with the story and then sort of, sort of go back and have like the original, like the origin story. That's so satisfying to me. And just sort of like, now that Star Wars is expanding, watching that expansion with the understanding of what has already happened or what they're moving towards, that's really, as a fan, fulfilling because you get all of the Easter eggs, you get all of the levels, you get the mythology, and that makes it a much more enriching sort of viewing experience. Where do you guys see the differences and the differences you can define between what you're doing between telling stories within a universe and what we may be denigratingly just call fanfic. You know, where, where is the line? Is the line even relevant at this point? Uh, I think it's very relevant. Um, I think if it just feels like fan service, if it just feels like it's there to make someone else happy and doesn't have a reason to be on a character level, to your point, then um, I always talked during development at Lucasfilm about my mum my mom's going to watch this one day. She doesn't care about Star Wars. It's better be a good story for my mom, otherwise we're in trouble. And I saw in an internal memo at Star Wars someone talking about my mom. Being like, well, Joby's mom wouldn't like that. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That's how we should be talking. So um, it better be a good story in and of itself in the vacuum of a character with a beginning and a middle and an end, forgetting everything else. And then if it works on that level, and we all agree it works on that level, then we can start talking about its bigger place within a bigger universe. There's something else I wanted to add to what you were saying before, is that the thing about Star Wars is it belonged to so many generations. Like, like my kids have a version, like my stepdad has a version, I have a version, like Obi-Wan belongs to multiple generations in different ways. 
you start thinking about that too much, you get caught up. So what's the story now with a beginning, a middle, and end from a character point of view? And then everything else comes, and all the fan stuff comes. Anyone else have an answer on that one? I mean, I have looked upon it, especially when, you know, like with Walking Dead or, you know, we're, we're working on a lot of things that aren't the comic. Comic is the main show. And in some ways, in some ways it, it feels like fan fiction in as much as that we're all just in, we're all just fans of it and we're geeking out over it. And again, it's like we're, we're fans of the story values of, of what makes The Walking Dead The Walking Dead. And it, sometimes it feels like super expensive fan fiction. And, <laughs> and, and I don't, I, 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 you know, obviously I have a good connotation to that. And there's so many good writers now that have come out of fan fiction. Uh, and I know that, you know, if I wasn't so damn old, I probably would have, you know, put fan fiction online myself. <laughs> Instead, it just stayed in the typewriter or the, you know, the Mac SE. So. Also, drama is conflict, right? So you are inevitably going to put beloved characters in really complicated situations where I think that's where you have to sort of separate yourself from the fandom as a writer you're gonna to have to put those beloved characters through morally questionable situations. You're gonna to have to throw them into the morally gray area. You're gonna to have to have conflict and sort of put them through the ringer because that's what we do as storytellers and that's inevitably going to upset some fans you know, for a period of time. Yeah, and that, that's a very good point because like one of the big story values of The Walking Dead is it isn't the, the purpose. We don't ever want to anger fans. But you want the characters, you want the fans to love the characters, and those characters die. So if you're doing your job as far as making good characters that they like, and you're honoring what the world is, where they die, it, there's sort of like this baked-in kind of disappointment factor if you're doing it right. So that's, that's absolutely the truth. What you and you want your characters to grow, right? And you grow through trials and tribulations and pain and... And so sometimes I understand why that's hard to see as a fan, your heroes to, you know, go through and make shady, comp you know, morally compromising decisions. Their identities, the things that you loved about the characters, they might not die, but their identities might change for the things that they did. Absolutely. Well, I think, Daniel, also it's interesting. We're talking about franchises that are already existing, right? They're of, of worlds that already have fans. I think... You know, we talk a lot about how do you build an IP universe of storytelling from a fresh story, from an original piece of material, an original idea, and how do you build that out from the get-go so that the template is there and the plans are there for all the different expressions of it, irrespective of before, before a fan can even become a fan. Well, I'll let you uh, talk about that, Scott, because uh, your company is developing a show called Citadel, and that's an Amazon product, and the thing that interests me about it is it's an original series, an original sci-fi series. You can tell people as much or as little as you want about it. But when it was initially announced, it was announced not just the main show, but a number of international spin-offs were announced as part of the initial announcement, which is sort of saying, okay, this isn't just a potential franchise. It's a franchise on the ground running. Talk a bit about that as a strategy. Um, it's a good question. Um, so at the outset of Citadel, uh, it was... Um, it was a collaboration between Jennifer Salky and Anthony Jeruso, and they came up with the idea of what if we took 
a US version and had multiple local language iterations of it that not only felt individual from the, the US version, but also spoke to the local communities and the local audiences. Um, and the idea was to really um, brand the, let's call it IP, or franchise for this for these purposes, um, and and really be able to tell you could, these. You could go with story stuff. S story stuff. <laughs> I like story stuff. That's good. That's it. That's good. Let's right. do it. You guys are the writers, so you, you know. Um, but but the idea is to really brand it and to really speak to indiv individual parts of the world as well as the international community as a whole. Um, and to my knowledge, it's it's a it, you know it's it hasn't really been done before in this way, um, and we're really excited about how it's coming together. I think what's interesting about that is it's acknowledging audiences, global audiences, and that's super important because each aspect of that audience feels the, that value um, and this being ascribed to them inherently. I've been a part of projects, story stuff projects, um, where it felt like hubris, where the franchise was already sort of being put out there and the audience smells that immediately and like you have to earn the right for me to watch you. You can't presume I'll be there in two years and another two years and another two years. And that's deeply problematic and I've, I've learned that the hard way. That sounds wonderful because it's expanding an audience, not presuming there's an audience. I think one of the reasons we are all storytellers is to sort of build cultural bridges and create empathy. And if we're sort of introduced to cultures and worlds that are unfamiliar to us through story, and that sort of expands our, our capability of empathy, and that's beautiful. And I think the key to it for us creatively is to be in very close touch with the local uh, creators, the local teams uh, at Amazon, and really be able to make something that resonates in that local country. But it's such an interesting process, because obviously the international spinoff or international version of a show, you know, that's a model that's well established. Plenty of shows on American TV have come from international formats, et cetera. But you have to, I assume, have the conversations in the room, okay, well, what if the Dutch version is wildly successful, but the American version and the Brazilian version fail? What does it become as a conversation if suddenly a surprising one of the spinoffs is a massive hit and the other ones just aren't? It's a great question. I don't think we look at it like that. I think we looked at it as if it sort of spokes on a wheel. So I think the stories, as I said, uh, touched on earlier, the stories are standalone shows. So if, if someone in one of those local countries watches that show and has no idea what the mothership show is like, they should hopefully be able to enjoy it on their own um, and not have to have reference for the, for the bigger picture um, and hopefully all of the work. Charmaine brought up something very interesting and this can be for all of you. You know, obviously, if you're Mining from IP, we're just going to keep saying IP over and over and over again. And I'm going to feel bad now every time I do it, so thank you for that. <laughs> just for the rest of your life. The, the obvious plus of it is that these are stories that have proven success in other mediums, and in some cases over hundreds of years, you know that this brand or this title or whatever will play. So that's the good side. The bad side is that the hundreds of years of storytelling that you're mining are hundreds of years in which certain perspectives have been favored, and primarily white men as the storytellers, white men as the subjects of the story. How do you keep from having, going to IP and resorting to IP, how do you keep it from being another form of gatekeeping? Well, as the only non-white male, um, <laughs> who is that directed towards? 
Um, you know, I think what you have to do is, I, we're living in a time right now just out in the world, there's so many other, we're just rediscovering history again, and I think it's because we're telling history and we're telling familiar stories in our own world from history, from just different points of view, and we're realizing that tells a fuller, richer picture, and I think that that translates to storytelling and IP or franchises just the same. I think it's really sort of, and that's why I'm really excited about the sort of like the expansion of universes that is going on in the entertainment industry right now, because I do think it's mirroring what's going on in our world, right? It's like we're taking the familiar, but we're telling it from a different point of view. And that's really exciting to me. That's, you know, that only enriches and elevates the fan base from many, many years ago that fell in love with the original story. It's like we're not retelling the original story. We're not discounting the original story. We're adding voices to it that hopefully elevates and expands and enriches that experience. I think um, looking at what Marvel's done in, the, in pushing paradigms uh, structurally and presenting tonal, having the bravery to push uh, different sort of progressive modes of storytelling within the way they're putting those shows forward versus traditional sort of, when I think of old franchise stuff, I think of like the hero's journey and like Campbell and like all that stuff, which was great, but so many conversations are changing. The fact that storytelling conversations are changing too and being progressive in the way the audience is receiving entertainment. And I'm looking at WandaVision in the way that that was very hard to reconcile as an audience member watching it until it revealed what it was going to be. And that just changes the storytelling language too. And if that's happening in harmony with everything you're saying, I think as an audience, we get to go along for the ride with the world changing as it should. And that's great for me to be sitting on the couch next to my kids and having them ask me questions about that too. And I think it's incumbent upon us within story stuff, storytelling, to uh, look to be pushing the envelope storytelling wise as well. I think telling you know the same story from a different point of view, it's like, I'm just gonna, because we're all so familiar with it, you know, the Anakin, Darth Vader, you know, if you look at Return of the Jedi, actually not as Luke Skywalker's story, but Anakin Skywalker's story, and if you think, well, okay, like maybe it's his hero's journey, but in reverse, and the Return of the Jedi is actually not Luke Skywalker prevailing over e evil or the triumph over evil, it's Anakin Skywalker returning to his humanity. Then it's, it's the same story, but it's from a different point of view, and it's a completely different emotional experience for the audience. Charmaine, I want to go back to your first answer to that question. Um, when you were sitting down in a room with the overlords, with the gatekeepers, however you want to put it, how, how much do you need to make it clear that when they're hiring you, they're getting you, they're getting your perspective, it's not just you're a person who's going to reproduce the vision and, you know, mimeograph the franchise, but they're getting your voice. Yeah, and this is something I just um, did an interview over at WGA with some of uh, the up-and-coming emerging writers about staffing, and I think that it's just really important that you have those open conversations about your vision for the project, your vision for the show, what you can contribute, and... Sometimes it's a creative match, and that's wonderful. That's fantastic. And sometimes it's not, and that's also really fantastic, and that's something that I, I think is equally as important as when it works. You know, I think if you know from the onset, you guys don't have the same creative vision. You can part as friends, you know? Not, not everything has to be a marriage or a creative marriage,
but I do think that it's important that people understand, you know, and thankfully I'm at a position now where I can have those conversations more with the studios and with the networks when we're moving into sort of a hiring phase or um, the creating show running phase. But even on the staffing level, I think, you know, let people know what they're getting and also let people know, you know, what's in your heart, the stories that you want to tell, because I think that sort of um, only breeds, it's, it's just sets the table for a great pairing. And if that pairing means that it's not for this project, but for another project, that's great. If you come to a meeting of the minds and you find that it's a great creative marriage, then that's great too. But I think, you know, being open and honest and being clear about your creative vision is always important in those meetings. What are the reactions that let you know if it's a good pairing or if they're simply not responding to you? It's so funny because everyone's so different. Um, you know, there's some execs that are completely, you can't read their face. Walt Hamada, you know, when he's not giving you anything, that's actually a good sign because his wheels are sort of spinning. And then there are other people when they're not giving you anything, it's because they're not connecting. So it's just, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to read. You know, it's always like you have to just wait for that phone call from your team afterwards. And then there are all some people who are very effusive in meetings and, you know, let you know straight away that it's great and they love it all. And that's always wonderful feedback to hear for any creative. I find it's good when someone asks uh, what your availability is. That's a good sign. I want to go back to something you were talking about, Scott, about sort of the, the core of what the Walking Dead franchise is, the sort of the foundational elements or themes or pieces. How, how do you define what those are? I can define some of them here, oh. uh, which is it's, it's a mix of, of a heightened reality with very real emotion. It's focusing on the characters and not the plot as much. So we need both. It's beyond that, really telling stories about choices, characters with choices, and how it might change them forever. And it's about evolution. I mean, Walking Dead was pitched as a comic as the zombie movie that never ends. You know, the, like all zombie movies would end, and Robert Kirkman would wonder what happened afterwards. And we were lucky enough to do 11 seasons of that, so to show people's evolution over all that time, how some people who were good, they're broad terms, but some people who were good became bad. People who had hope lost it. People who never had hope gained it. And how society itself reformed. But I, I think the, the, the crux of it is that very heightened reality with very real emotion. And also taking chances. Um, really moving towards shooting ourselves in the foot every eight episodes by losing people that we love working with or characters that we love talking about, uh, writing towards. And I, I think that's, that's a weird thing with The Walking Dead is it, it, it's about refreshing itself. It's, it's not Kirk and Spock on the bridge for years and years. Well, how often though do things come up in the writer's room where people immediately go, good idea, dot, 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 but it's not The Walking Dead, you know, it's, it's not this franchise, not this story? Well, I think we try to take those ideas and make them into The Walking Dead um, to bring them towards the story values, to try and keep that overall voice and have a lot of different voices telling those stories, but just keep those kernels that, that make The Walking Dead The Walking Dead, but do it in wildly different ways. 
It'll be the same question, basically, but for the Obi-Wan universe. It's a really good answer, by the way. It didn't feel like it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. That was great. Because what's interesting about it is, is it speaks, when you finish saying it, I'm like, yeah, it's Walking Dead. But you spoke to the soul of the experience of watching that show. And I, uh, it, it, it's about a feeling. It's the same thing, I think, in Star Wars. The true north is the feeling. You're like, oh, that, that doesn't feel like Star Wars. I feel like we're, we're pushing a little too far. I was guilty of that at times. Like the Vader 103 thing of like the last third. It was visceral. When, when the rubber see, meets the I, road. I knew I would have to watch all the episodes before this. <laughs> but, but like I pushed that too far in the first incarnation because I wanted it to, I wanted to feel what it felt like for Obi-Wan and it stopped being Star Wars. It was like, you gotta you can pull it back just a little bit, a little bit because my kids will be on the couch, you know? So that what is and what isn't ends up being a feeling and that feeling ends up coming from fundamentally being a fan and recognizing that all the fans are right, first and foremost. Even when they disagree, they disagree and they're right. And then just trying to follow that spirit of that is Star Wars, that isn't Star Wars. And that just comes down to the room. That comes down to your gut. I mean, same question, but for the, let's say for the Game of Thrones spinoff, hypothetically, what are the core values of that universe? And how do they manifest themselves in very specific plot points related to the series <laughs> coming to HBO in a couple months? Did you months? guys see the fear that just came across my face? <laughs> um, I, you know, I think just going back to the OG it's a, you know, it's a family drama, right? I mean, it's a, it's a family drama, and I think when you take away any of the layers of genre, whether it's flying dragons, whether it's Jedi, whether it's anything like that, you always ask yourself, or I always ask myself, like, what's the Independent Spirit movie award? What's the Sundance movie underneath the dragons, underneath the Jedis? And at the end of the day, that's what you focus on. But I think most importantly is what I always ask myself and what I encourage writers in, in the room to always ask themselves is what, are, what do we want the audience to feel right now? Truly, what do we want the audience to feel? And keeping the audience's experience, emotional experience, at the forefront of our storytelling. So what is the... Uh, what is the plot point? No, what is the, what is the Sundance movie that you would use as a, a corollary for what House of the Dragons is? I'm never going to answer that question. <laughs> I thought that one was a totally approachable answer. Well done. I tried. But even as a fan, like, I mean, every, no one wants spoilers. No one really wants spoilers. I mean, you think you do, and then you really We kind of do. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about fans, because that is obviously the thing that keeps a franchise or long-running IP going. You, you know that the fans are out there. You know that they're devoted, and obviously that's good to get people in the door, but with great fandom comes great expectations, and that then leads to occasional discomfort with things. Um, I want to start with you, Joby, here. How much of the reaction to Moses Ingram and that character did you anticipate? How much surprised you? And, and how does that affect how you tell stories going forward? I mean, it's, it surprised me to the degree that I'm forever surprised by just how some people are. Um, I was very disappointed by it. I was very, I very much agree with everything that Ewan said about it um, in Standing with Moses. And fundamentally, I think she's an extraordinary actor and that, that part is very hard to pull off when you're walking into an existing story stuff world and you're 
that powerful and that big a figure in a new story. It's, I thought she did a, uh, an amazing job. And, you know, there, there are people I would qualify as fans and people I wouldn't, and, and it, it, was, it was tough to uh, watch, and I'm glad that the, the show continues to reveal everything she's capable of as an actor. Scott, how good are you at this point of predicting what the audience is going to tear things down about, what they're going to be excited about, or how often are you surprised? I'm sometimes surprised, but um, there's certain characters that big groups gravitate towards, or one might say loud groups gravitate towards. But um, it, it's always been pretty surprising. Um, I, I will say, you know, there's a lot of bad surprises, but there's also a lot of good surprises. And there are points that I'm very, very proud of the fandom and, and very, I admire the way they, they come at it when they throw, they take things we throw at them and, and uh, bring things out of it for themselves um, in ways that are, you know, super, the amount of Walking Dead tattoos I've seen is, is unbelievable. And when it's just dialogue, it isn't one of Greg Nicotero's great zombies or it isn't Andy Lincoln's face. Um, that blows me away. Um, but I, I will say uh, that Twitter isn't real. Um, that sounded like a question. Are, are you sure? No, no, there was, no, there was okay. it's my bad intonation. It, there, it was a period. There was, it was a, period. a period. Okay, good. Twitter isn't real. It, it is real like ham radio is real. Like there's people who are really into ham radio and I respect those people and I respect a lot of people on Twitter. But It doesn't make it real. But it, yeah, it doesn't make it like reality. Um, more people read newspapers than, than use Twitter, I think. <laughs> Again, I'm old, so that statistic was from like three or four years ago. Uh, I, that isn't to say that people on Twitter, I don't want to discount anybody, but I just don't think it's the one thing. I think there's a variety of things. And uh, I think that's always really important to keep in mind, but in the same respect, when bad things go down there, I think they should be attended to. And uh, it was very admirable to see how the bad things going down on Twitter were attended to by people on Obi-Wan. And uh, that was inspiring to me. Charmaine, as House of the Dragon arrives, are you planning on staying on ham radio and monitoring what people are saying, or are you going to I don't want to condemn people in ham radio, though, <laughs> or Twitter. But. I love, um, you know, I love the fans. I've been a part of shows that had a very lively social media fan base, and interacting with fans is always fun. Um, there's that line that you have to just always remember is there, and I wasn't being critical. I was, I was asking. Like, Twitter's not real, right? It's like, because sometimes it can feel very real. But I also think, you know, when you're talking about IP and the materials that people are so familiar with and that's so beloved, it also, as a storyteller, it keeps you on your toes because you can't, like people have done deep dives into these projects and these properties for years and years and years. And so you have to be um, very respectful of that. And there's not a lot of hand waving that can go along with these beloved projects and properties because there are fans out there that will just call you on it. So I think as a storyteller, that's, um, that's just not a challenge and, and it's good, right? I want to try getting a couple questions from the audience in case anyone wants to ask you to give plot points that, you know, I was too shy to ask about. <laughs> for, the, uh, for the camera, which might not have picked up the audio, uh, he asked, where do you find the personal level within the world? 
Wait, there's a camera? I didn't want to go first. I just wanted to say that. Uh, I find it in, uh, in all the things that aren't the moments when you have to adhere to canon or the mythology or the fan base or the franchise story stuff. Those bits in between are where you get to treat it just like you would any story you're telling and find the things that are emotional to you. If you can't find yourself in the character to begin with, it's probably you're not the right storyteller for that character. And so, you know, like I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm all sorts of different things in my life outside of my work. And if I can't find myself in the journey of the characters going on, I'm, I should be telling that part of the story. So it's really everything in between. And I see it constantly, where, you know, the best part about it too is I wrote Obi-Wan through lockdown. So I've got my kids at the kitchen table and I'm writing in my office and those two things can't help but bleed into one and it becomes intensely personal, as it should. And if it isn't, you're punching a time clock and, and it, it doesn't feel like the right fit. I would just add to that in terms of even your antagonists or your villains, you have to find the humanity in it, right? You have to find the humanity in order for it to be fully dimensionalized and real and... I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's, you know, the antagonist is the protagonist of his own movie. And I think that just finding that humanity, finding that piece of relatability when you are writing that villain and that antagonist is really important as well. And that's something that I try to do. And I think that, you know, writers that I've worked with have done really well in sort of making it a three-dimensional character. I, I think, um, you know, the way that uh, I depended on comics when I was a kid to do to do certain things or or, or or be heroic through the heroes I read about or or to get in the villain's head and and see what was going on there. Like I, I remember the Killing Joke, Alan Moore's comic was like mind blowing that way and the way that Frank Miller portrayed the Joker in Dark Knight. Well, but but then as a little kid, it's you know. Wanted to fly the X-wing up the Death Star, but when you when you're writing, um, I think it's sort of the same thing. There's there's uh, you know there's characters that you gravitate towards. The the character of Carol on the show, played by Melissa McBride, is somebody who is a survivor uh, and and then became a warrior. And I very much uh, I very much identified with her and kind of how she came up through different circumstances and and kind of passed, you know, in a certain way and very much emerged as somebody nobody else. I guess I'm trying, to, I was aspiring to be like Carol, um, to be somebody that uh, emerged as, you know, incredibly formidable. And, and then I look at a character like Eugene, who is just a straight geek, and I'm like, oh, I can do this. Um, but I think you write moments where you either want to like look at yourself and the things you've been through, or you're somehow writing moments where it's like, ooh, I hope I could be like that person. Just the same way you read it. Yep, right there. Red, yes, Richard. I was wondering for all of you that are writing in these universes that you love, but especially for you, Joby, what is it like to have watched and loved the Star Wars universe to the point of like playing it and then write something and then have you and McGregor say the lines that you wrote as Obi-Wan. Like, I feel like the, the writer-kid playground part of all of us, I can't imagine, like, what that's like when you actually see it. I'm so curious. For all of you that have had that experience, what it's like. Super weird. Because <laughs> I, I, I would do his voice 
as a kid. So then he does his own voice, but it's an interpretation of Hugh McGregor doing Sir Alec Guinness's voice. Uh, there's a young lady in the front row wearing a starring Ewan McGregor sweatshirt. I'm starstruck by the sweatshirt. So it's very bizarre to get to see those things come to life, especially when that actor knows that character so way better than you ever could. They've lived with that character and understood that character. You're trying to do the right thing by the actor as well as the character. It's a very strange situation as opposed to when you're writing and it hasn't even been cast yet. And even he is doing a version of what Sir Alec Guinness did. It's, it gets very heady. And eventually, it just becomes about closing the door and just trying to pretend it's a normal day. Um, but I really was starstruck by that sweatshirt. That wasn't a joke. So that answers the question. I, I will say I, I was a huge fan of the comic, and then I was a huge fan of the show. So much so that I didn't want to uh, interview for the show when a job came up, and my agent told me I was being silly. Uh, but I just didn't want to see how the sausage was made because I loved it so much. And then a year later, I'm like standing on set with Rick Grimes, and it was kind of, it, it was what you're talking about. It's pretty heavy to be sitting there like you're watching a show and then you're standing in the show. To hear a bit about your creative process when you are trying to figure out a new story or a new perspective in an existing world of sort of what your way in is either because it's been mined so many times or because it's previously only been told in one way and now you're trying to think of like what is the other way to look at it like if you were given the mandate of create a new story in the lego world or create a new story in the funko pop world where does your brain start with that i think it starts with those story values like you you know everybody here probably has a story they just want to tell like things that interest them or characters that are bouncing around their head. But then thinking about that world first and how that story that's bouncing around your head might fit into it, I think that's where some magic can happen because you bring stuff to it yourself and then you get stuff from it, from the world that's in. And then all the mythologies of that world, you know, beyond story values, just, you know, the Jedi and the Sith. Okay, you have a story bouncing around your head about... it might not even have to do with the uh, good people and bad people. It might have to do with just an emotional journey of a character, but you add that to it, and then you're off to the races. I think if it doesn't speak to you, you're, again, like I said before, you're the wrong person. So if that story value speaks to wherever you are as a human being at that point in your life, and you see the character, which is the key part, in that way, and those three things come together, then you should be telling that story. But you've got to find what the soul is. I talk about soul of IP, which sounds like an oxymoron. But once you've found out why it's captured people's imagination, and you have to ask yourself, why do people like a 30-foot-tall robot? It's hard to get to the answer to that question. But when you do, if you can find a character beneath that and it speaks to you, then you should be telling that story. And it won't just feel like fan service or you're selling toys. Also, it's like the Manish Tana of it all. If, like, why now? Like, why are we telling this story now, why are we telling the story from this point of view now, um, in addition to the character and obviously, you know, your personal connection to it, but sort of like globally and like, how does this reflect or mirror the things that people are experiencing in the world, like the human experience that's going on right now? Why is it important for this story to be told at this time? Can we sneak in one more question? Let's right there if we could. Um, so for kind of like what, what you just said about the soul of IP, if you're a writer, a filmmaker, like how can you, I, what, are, what, are my, what are you looking for? What are people looking for when they're acquiring IP? 
that we can make as creators and then look at our work and it's like, oh, there's actually, there's like franchise potential in here. There's, you know, like people like you are gonna wanna do more like stuff with it and expand it and grow it. And it can be like a really great legacy or whatever. What, what are those qualities that would make really fertile IP? I mean, yeah, this is a Scott question here. <laughs> well, I, I think when you're looking at a new IP to, to develop into these franchises, to me it's all about what these three fine folks have been saying, which is connectability. Um, it does the character and the characters of the world loop you in emotionally? What is that connection? Do you want to follow them across this universe or or this group across this universe? To me, I think that's that storytelling is universal, no pun intended. Um, and I think that's what draws you in, whether it's Obi-Wan or it's Rick Grimes or it's the Lannisters, you, want, you desperately want to see more of them. I'd also say latitude, um, room to grow, timelines, mythology. You know, like, um, like I said, I got to work on John Wick for a little while. That's a great flag on the ground of here's a character, here's an actor, right time, right moment, speaks to an audience just from a tone point of view. But there's great depth of mythology you can build around so you can expand it into a franchise, a TV show. You can grow with the popularity. It needs to have a flag at the beginning, but if there is a breadth that it were, have room to expand, that's really important too. Some of the big ideas don't have that, and some of the small ideas do have that. And I think the latter is probably where you know, franchise takes hold. I think the why now is also important. We talk a lot about that as well, which how does it resonate with what's going on in today's society, whether it's something that is in the future, whether it's speculative fiction, whether it's in the past, um, how do we as a society interact with it and what, what is it trying to say as a, as a franchise? And that, you know, George Lucas had a really great quote. He said, you know, fairy tales tell us who we are, tell us who our society is and tell us how to behave in society. And I think like that, to that point, it really is important to ask the sort of like, why now? Like, why does this story need to be, to be told now as opposed to 10 years ago or as opposed to two years ago? And I think living in a rapidly changing world, um, that's an important, important story. I mean, an important question to ask. And I also think like rich, fertile characters, like just populate a lot of super interesting characters that people want to live with and spend time with. And I think organically something will emerge to the top where you're like, oh yeah, I want to know the backstory for that character. I want to know the origin story for that character. Or I want to follow that character past this timeline into a different set of experiences. Can, and I know I've said this phrase a lot, but if you can establish story values that are unique to this story, that can translate to all sorts of different stories, that, that the story values are the voice of your, of your story stuff, of your universe. And that, there's a lot of questions, you know? Uh, after Star Wars, when, when Darth Vader was knocked away from from the Death Star before it blew up. Spoiler alert. Uh, um, I remember being a kid that night and just looking up at the ceiling and just thinking like, hey, wait, where did he go? Like, what happened? And, and if there's a lot of questions, like, what about that person? What about that thing they mentioned in the past? Whatever, what about that planet or that place that fell? Um, if there's a lot of questions there that get people wondering, you already have certain well, next story. 
And I think, you know, even that confrontation with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan in the originals, it was just sort of like, oh, what's your history about? Like, yeah, I want to live there. There were a lot of things said. Yeah, that... there were a lot of things said. So I think, you know, when you're constructing or crafting the original story, just sort of, I always think it's good to have a larger myth understanding of your mythology. Even if your story is sort of confined to sort of the middle of that mythology, I think it's always to understand and have a knowing of a larger mythology so that you can then plant those Easter eggs. And 50 years in the making, we have episode three, right? It's just sort of like they will provide fertile ground for things to grow. I think it's a great point. We, we, we talk a lot about building out the, the underpinnings of a franchise at the beginning of the story, right? And how you, when you're sowing the seeds of the original, really, you know, we, we like to, to talk to creators about doing a full Bible um, that includes what the movie expression might be, what the TV expression might be, what the gaming expression might be, um, podcasts and so on, and graphic novels. And we might say, hey, the TV expression will come first. We think we see that as the initial, but how does the rest of it fit in? And I think that's important to have a plan in place uh, as early as possible. I think that's how you know if you've got a good idea, if it comes along with a bunch of doors that you think the audience is going to want to open, then it's a good idea. I think there's a lot of mythology behind this panel that people are going to want to get more information on and would like for it to ha perhaps become a franchise on its own. But I believe that we are out of time. But thank you so much to Scott, Joby, Scott, and Charmaine. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.